Well, you've probably noticed a couple of things different this morning. Uh, number one, there is sunshine out an hour earlier. <laughs> um, number two, uh, we have some wonderful new screens up here that we're using. They uh, help us uh, be able to see better in all parts of the auditorium instead of those precious uh, remnant few who uh, uh, have to sit somewhere where there's not a good view. So uh, those screens will be a great help for us and uh, appreciate Terry and so many others that have helped us in this renovation process and improving our uh, facilities. It's been a real blessing. You may have noticed last week we also have some monitors in the foyer um, and basically what we're, we're trying to send you the message you can run, but you cannot hide from Bill's sermons. They're just going to pop up everywhere. Um, and, uh, and so, uh, hopefully, uh, you'll be able to catch some of the announcements that you miss, uh, by looking at those screens. We're going to try to scroll things up there that are important for everyone to be aware of. And, um, and we appreciate, uh, of course, always input and, and are glad to uh, see these improvements being made uh, to our physical uh, facility. Um, it is a, a great blessing to be able to be in a place that, as Don shared during our communion time and contribution time, uh, is so committed to doing so much. Uh, and as Ken shared with our 2020 vision markers, uh, that call to uh, look up and grow spiritually uh, ourselves and to reach in and grow in love and unity uh, with one another as we seek to establish our own faith and continue to grow our own faith, but also encourage one another uh, to grow in the love and unity we have with one another as we serve God uh, together. Of course, our encouragement cards that we have begun doing are are very much a part of that. If you missed putting one of those in the uh, contribution plate, there are always some that are available in the back uh, on the table in the foyer and a box there that you can put it in as well. And so we encourage you to encourage others. That's a big part of our, of our 2020 vision. And then also, of course, growing out, realizing that God is not satisfied with just us uh, being faithful, but he wants us in our faith uh, to serve him by reaching out uh, to others so that we can not just grow our church family, but that we can also grow uh, the kingdom of Christ. And so that's a, that's a great blessing. And these first two months of the year, uh, in January and February, and now continuing in March, we have been focusing on that 2020 vision. And now over these last couple of months especially, uh, looking at the first century church and the conviction that they had as expressed in the book of Acts. And asking ourselves, okay, let's identify some of those markers that the church had in the first century that Acts displays in such a marvelous, astounding way as the church uh, remarkably grew in the first several decades of its existence. And then ask ourselves, how can we mirror those things in the 21st century? Having first century conviction in a 2020 church. And that's been our goal over these last, um, over these last uh, several weeks, especially, and will be as we continue through the month of March. And today's, uh, today's uh, focus is on what I have entitled the unspoken conviction. 
It's one that we don't talk about. It's one that we kind of don't like to talk about. And depending on your personality, it's, it's one that you actually try to avoid. But the unspoken conviction of the first century church and should be also of the 2020 church is that we manage our conflicts. It's not that we don't have conflict. It's that we manage them. The conviction and practice of the first century church was to manage conflict. I'm going to be sharing a chart that I have used uh, in a few different settings over the last almost five years that we've been here. uh, That is borrowed from Randy Lowry, who is now the president of Lipscomb University and was a former law professor at Pepperdine and uh, was uh, uh, a very much a part of the, the process of mediation being done in the business world and in churches and, uh, and has been very helpful in, in providing some of uh, these markers and, and, and this method and this model to be used in managing conflict. Uh, my personality is one that, that my default mode is to avoid. My default mode is to let's just give it a while and maybe it'll go away. That's my default mode. Probably, likely, that's one of the reasons why I got into ministry because I just wanted to help people. I wanted everybody to feel good and to have all of their needs uh, met. But in years of ministry, what I found is that avoidance doesn't always meet the needs of the moment. And in our day and time, especially in our culture, Uh, When diversity is uh, very significant, tolerance is very significant, acceptance is very significant, all of those things are important, and all of those things are a part of the Christian's life. And, And those should be hallmarks of how we treat others as well. But if you're thinking that that's all that's involved in being a Christian, that's all that's involved in being a, 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 a 2020 church, that's all that's involved in the teaching of Scripture, then you're missing it um, by a lot, as we're going to see today. And so uh, we, it's unrealistic for us to think that we're never going to have any conflict because we're all Christians and we all love the Lord and we all believe in the Bible and life is grand. Well, if your church has more than one member, there's going to be conflict at times. There's going to be tension. There's going to be disagreement. And sometimes that disagreement and that tension is going to be very significant and over very significant issues. And the wonderful thing about Scripture is that it it doesn't hide that fact. In fact, Scripture displays the first century church going through major difficult conflicts, conflicts that could have split the church right up, and yet they managed it. They managed it. And I believe that we can too. It's not easy, and it doesn't mean that you always get your way, but it is important. It is significant, and that's what we're trying to uh, accomplish today, the unspoken conviction and practice of the first century church was to manage conflict. So here's the chart from Dr. Randy Lowry, and you'll notice that it's got a couple of main parts to it. On the vertical axis is the word issue, and on the horizontal axis is the word relationship. 
And how he views this is by looking at this from the perspective of those are the, the two main issues that are involved, the issue and the relationship. And when you have a tension, when you have a conflict, when you have a disagreement, those are the two things that you are especially concerned about because those are the two things that tend to be a one or the other kind of choice. And as we're going to see from this model, uh, that's, that's not the case. That's not the case. And I've got this model printed in the handout that was given to you as you uh, uh, received your bulletin today. And also, uh, I'm going to have some uh, completed, with all the blanks filled in, (laughs) copies of it, out in the foyer on the table uh, as well. And you can always, of course, if you have a question about something or miss something, you can let me know. But I hope that you notice right off the bat on these on these outlines, I won't show them on the screen because of a lack of room, but on your handout, you'll notice lots and lots of scriptures. And so as I share this model, I want you to know I share this model, but I'm using scripture to support those different things. Because in all of the things that we're going to talk about, there are biblical examples These are different ways of dealing with and managing conflict situations. And so what that tells us right off the bat is the first century church had conflict. (laughs) And the first century church managed conflict. But the first century church didn't always manage it in the exact same way each and every time. And so that's when you have to ask yourself, okay, what is the issue? What is it that's at stake here? What are we squabbling over? <laughs> what's the argument? What's the, what's the difference? What's the disagreement? And, you know, if you're going to have a good argument, that's okay. Just be sure that you're arguing about the same thing. <laughs> Granted, in families, with couples, with parents and children, in college dorms, or in, in fr- within friends, we see this model being very, very helpful as well. And a lot of times what seems to be the issue, the the specific thing, perhaps the precipitating event that causes this disagreement to come out in the open, is really not the main issue at all. And so as they say, you have to go below the line and and find out what the emotions and the feelings and the experiences are that are driving this disagreement. Why is this issue so important to this person? For example, when you talk to me about whether it's okay to drink alcohol at all in today's world, you're going to find a very passionate response. And you might, if you don't know me, you're going to say, well, wow, he sure got upset over that. That, that deteriorated quickly with, with him. Well, when you get to know me, you come to learn that my father was an alcoholic and that a lot of my relatives are alcoholics and that my parents divorced when I was a teenager because of my father's alcoholism. And I, I've got to say, I'm, I'm going to preach and practice teetotalism, which means you don't drink alcohol at all. And one of the reasons for that is, is because I've been to Brookshire's, I've gone down the soft drink line, you've got lots of choices. If you can't find something that will go well with your hamburger besides a beer, and if you can't find something that will go with your spaghetti other than a glass of wine, you're not looking. You're not looking. And you say, well, Bill, give me the BCV for that. Well, we can talk about that. 
But what drives this issue with me is that I have seen it destroy families and I have seen it destroy lives. I have seen it destroy my family. Well, that's a whole different issue, isn't it? That's a little bit below the line. It's not just what we're talking about. It's something that drives the strong feelings behind that. Well, that's true of a lot of other disagreements that we have. But you've got that horizontal axis as well on the bottom, the relationship. And the relationship is just as important as the issue. And we see this throughout Scripture from the very beginning. In the Ten Commandments, six of the ten are about relationship. Only four of the ten are about our vertical relationship with God. The other six are about how we treat each other. When Jesus is cornered and asked, what's the greatest commandment? He doesn't just say, love God. That's the vertical. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because relationship is important. Sometimes relationship is what rules the day. And so that's what we're speaking about this morning. Okay, so let's fill in some of these blanks. Remember, the issue is the vertical axis. The relationship is... Uh, The horizontal axis that goes from 0 to 10, bottom to top, and 0 to 10, left to right. And so let's start with that bottom left, avoid. My favorite. (laughs) Avoid is a 0-0. It means the issue is a 0 and the relationship is a 0. What that basically means is that neither of those is so important that I want to mess with this one. As parents, we understand you what? Choose your battles. (laughs) And as your kids get older, that becomes more and more important and also more and more difficult. And that's part of that very difficult transition time between childhood and, and, uh, and adulthood trying to navigate those stormy times where you're, you're dealing with a child that's not exactly a child, but that's not an adult yet either. And so you realize that some battles you just don't need to fight. Well, Scripture indicates that that's true also. The book of Acts indicates that that's true also. Some issues you can just uh, avoid. Some issues you can just uh, avoid. In Acts chapter 5, God did that in a miraculous way as some of the disciples were in, in jail because of they were preaching the gospel. And they were going to be questioned the next day, but God sent his angel and got them out of jail during the night. And so the next day, they were right back on the street preaching. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a great way of avoiding conflict. We didn't have to deal with it at all. God just miraculously got them out. Well, that's probably not going to happen a whole lot in this day and time. And so we turn to Acts chapter 9, and we see another example of avoidance. When Saul of Tarsus was persecuting the church, you know he was on his way to Damascus to do exactly that. And on the way, he met Jesus face to face. And then he spent three days in the city praying and fasting. And finally, this Christian man by the name of Ananias came to him and told him about all the things that God had in store for him and called him to be baptized and wash away his sins, as Acts 22, verse 16 says. And so... Saul of Tarsus did exactly that. Later, he would become Paul the Apostle. But right now, he's a new Christian. And he's still in the city of Damascus, but he immediately begins preaching in the name of Christ, the one he was trying to destroy. Well, as you would figure, that's not going to go so well with the enemies of the church. 
And so in Acts 9, verse 23, after many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. That's called avoiding the conflict. Oh, sure, let's stay and fight. Let's challenge him. Let's tell him that this is not right and they shouldn't feel this way about Saul. Well, that's an option. And we're going to see that's an option that you take in some situations, but not every situation. And not this situation. And so how did they deal with the conflict? They avoided it. They waited until they could scoot him out privately, secretly at night. And send him off to another place where he would be physically safe. There are other examples in your handout of other biblical examples, not just in the book of Acts. Um, including an Old Testament example in 1 Kings 19. Uh, when Ahab and Jezebel are threatening the prophet Elijah, and, and he runs, he avoids, runs for his life. Well, not every situation is to be avoided. And so let's go to the move down the relationship axis to the right a little bit and go to accommodate. Accommodate on the lower right. Accommodate is... Um, Basically, what it says is that the issue is a zero. The issue is not nearly so important this time, but the relationship means everything. The relationship is a 10, and so we need to not budge on the relationship. We need to make sure whatever we do, the relationship is going to remain intact. So let's accommodate. Let's give in. Let's let them have their way. Now, this is not right every time, but it is right sometimes. It was right in Acts chapter 16. In Acts chapter 16, Paul and his new partner Silas are going to begin their, what is Paul's second missionary journey. And as they go, they meet this young man by the name of Timothy. And so Acts 16, beginning in verse 1, Paul came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was a Jewish woman and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Well, as we're going to see in just a moment, this question about circumcision, even though it was required by God from the time of Abraham in 2000 or so B.C., in the time of the first century church of the new covenant through Jesus Christ, it's no longer required. And yet in this case, this grown man, Timothy, was told to be circumcised. He had never been circumcised, even though his mother was a Jew. His father was a Gentile, a Greek, a non-Jew. And he put his foot down and said, you're not circumcising my boy. Well, now his boy was a man, was a Christian, as was his mother, and was about to become a missionary. And Paul, knowing that they would be going and meeting with Jews a lot of the time, knew that this would be a stumbling block. And so he said, I'm sorry, Timothy, but you need to do this. For the sake of the gospel, you need to accommodate. We're not going to stand and fight over whether you have to or not. That's not important this time. What's important this time is maintaining that relationship with people we're trying to win to the Lord. 
And so Timothy was circumcised. Later in the book of Acts, in Acts 21, as Paul is traveling and he ends up back at Jerusalem, and there's this whole question about whether Paul is, is completely given up on his Jewish roots. James, the half-brother of the Lord, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, not Peter, not any of the other apostles, but James, just as he takes the lead in Acts 15, counsels Paul and says, look, we have some men here who are, they've taken a vow according to the Jewish custom and probably uh, some kind of leveret vow or, or, or Nazarite vow or something. And, and, and James says, I want you to join with, let, let's, let's have you join with them and pay their expenses and demonstrate to your Jewish brothers that you haven't left your Jewish heritage, even though you're now a Christian. It would go a long way towards helping appease some of the things that are being said about you. And Paul says, sure, fine, no big deal. Well, he could have stood his ground and said, no, I'm in the right, they're in the wrong, they need to get over it. Instead, he acquiesced, he accommodated, he took part in that vow that he didn't have to do at all. But the issue was not that important, and he was willing to accommodate. Jesus went to the home of the tax collector and sinner, Zacchaeus, in Luke 19. Much is written in Romans and 1 Corinthians about being willing to give in to the needs of your brother when that's called for. Accommodate is a certainly an appropriate choice at times, but now let's go to the opposite end of the scale, to the top left. And this is confront. Randy Lowry's word, compete. It's, it's when you confront. It's the opposite of accommodating because now the issue is all important. Not the relationship, but the issue is all important. The issue is a 10, and so the relationship becomes a zero. You realize that for this issue, it is so important, I will risk the relationship. I will risk the unity with my brother. Because the issue is that important. Well, we find examples of that in the book of Acts as well. In Acts chapter 5, God confronted in a big way when Ananias and Sapphira were lying about their gift. <laughs> he handled that, wouldn't you say, in a pretty confrontive way? He struck them both dead. I think that's confronting a little bit. Pretty sure that's confronting. And Acts chapter 16, though, is another example. And this is an example of being willing to confront. And it's one that we don't hear about a lot because we, we hear so much from this preacher and from others that we're supposed to give in. We're supposed, the way of the cross is to sacrifice. And yes, that is right almost all the time. But there are some times where the issue is so important that you draw a line and you say, no. Nope. This isn't right. I'll not stand for it. Well, that's what happens at the end of Acts chapter 16. You remember Acts 16. It's Paul and Silas and Timothy going into Europe for the first time with the gospel of Christ. And they convert that woman named Lydia in the city of Philippi. And they stay there and they minister there for a while. And they heal this woman who is possessed by an evil spirit and was being used and abused by her slave owners who used her gift to make money. And when Paul has this demon, cast this demon out of her, their source of income is no longer there. So they raise a fuss and have Paul and Silas arrested and beaten and flogged and put in jail. But in Acts 16, they're in Philippi that night. As we know the story, Paul and Silas are in jail, but they're singing hymns to God and God brings a great earthquake and 
and all of their doors, prison doors are open, all of their bonds and stocks are, are gone, and they could escape, but they stay, and they convert that jailer and his family that night, that same hour of the night. He and his family are baptized in Jesus and come to faith. And then the next morning, Acts chapter 16, verse 35. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release these men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave, go in peace. You see, they were Roman citizens and what had happened was very, very wrong. But, and and here's an example where Paul could have said, well, fine, what they did to us was wrong, what they did to us was bad, it's going to look bad on the church, but it's okay, it's okay, We'll, we'll just go quietly. No, that's not what happens at all. Verse 37, but Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison, and now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city, which they ultimately did. But Paul felt it was very important for that church to know, that community to know, that they had done nothing wrong and had been treated unjustly, and they stood their ground, and they fought. It's not right all the time. I think it's not even right most of the time. But it's right some of the time. Why? Because sometimes that issue is a 10. The issue is so important, you cannot budge. That's the message of the gospel. When the teaching of Scripture is at stake, It's a 10. It's a 10. We see that in other places um, as well. In Galatians 2, there's that story of, of Paul taking not Timothy now, but Titus, who has not been circumcised, and going to Jerusalem with him and making sure that they knew that he was an uncircumcised Christian and that that was okay. Because it wasn't just about accommodating some Jews with Timothy. It was about the gospel, whether this was required or not. And it was a whole different situation, so it called for a whole different action. Paul confronted Peter to his face in Acts 2 because he was treating Gentiles differently than Jewish Christians and he wouldn't have it. So he confronted his fellow apostle. Jesus says in Matthew 18, when you have... When you're at odds with your brother or sister, what are you supposed to do? Go to them. Go to them. Talk it over. Work it out together. And then get others involved as needed. Jesus confronted the rich young ruler with the one thing that would drive him away. And it did. But Jesus said, I've got to have your whole heart. In Galatians 6, we are told that When someone is overtaken in a fault, those who are spiritual should do that, but in a spirit of meekness, as our shepherd Ken Culpepper shared in our prayer earlier, praying for the unity and humility that we require, that God requires. And during this time when there is confrontation needed, humility must be active. And we must do that in a way that is loving 
and faithful and humble, recognizing our own selves and our own temptation, Paul writes in Galatians 6. But sometimes that must be done. That confrontation must occur. There are so many other examples of that on your, on your handout. Because again, I believe in our day and time, in our culture especially, this one is the one that people say, no, let's not do that. Let's not do that. Let's not confront. Let's just all get along. And yet that wasn't the answer at times in the first century. And it's not the answer at times today. Well, let's go to the middle now, number five, compromise, which you might think is the best way to go. And sometimes it is the right way to go, but not all the time. And there is one more that is even stronger. But let's talk about compromise for just a moment. And let's go to that chapter in Acts, in Acts chapter 15. This is when uh, Peter has already converted Cornelius and his household who are Gentiles. And now the church at Antioch in Syria is going crazy, ministering and preaching the gospel to those who are not Jews. They're not requiring them to keep the law. They're just telling them to come and follow Christ. And, and the, the Jewish leaders, the Jewish Christian leaders in Jerusalem are really nervous about that. And so they're saying, I don't think this is right. So they call a conference in Acts chapter 15. And they meet together and they hear Peter tell his story. And they hear Paul and Silas tell their stories of how God is at work in all of this. And so again, it's James who, who comes and he says, you know, this is exactly what the Old Testament, as we would call it, talked about. And then he says in Acts 15 verse 19, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. And this is what they do, and it's a great compromise. They tell all these new Gentile converts, okay, you don't have to follow the whole law of Moses. Your men don't have to be circumcised. But there are a few things you could do that would really help your Jewish Christian brothers and sisters. And so he lists a few of those things. And a couple of those things are things that later on in Romans and in 1 Corinthians are things that Paul says, you know, this is not important anymore. It was important now. And it was a part of this compromise. Later... Um, not so much. Later on in Acts chapter 16, in verses 35 and following, as we read earlier, there's this, there's this stand that, that Paul takes with the Philippian uh, leaders of the city to have them come and escort him out. But it's sort of a compromise as well because what they want is for Paul and Silas to leave the city, and so they do. Maybe they could have stayed a little longer, but they were willing to go. Jesus compromised with the Jewish leaders when they questioned him about his authority he says he turns it back on them in Matthew 21 he says okay let's talk about authority for a minute John's baptism from heaven or from men you tell me they decided that either way they play that they're going to be found at fault and so they say well we're not sure so Jesus says okay we'll compromise I won't let you I won't require you to answer my question and I won't answer yours either interesting compromise well, the last one is in the upper right, and it is collaboration. It is to collaborate. When, there's, when the issue is a 10 and the relationship is also a 10, and you're looking at this and you're saying, I don't want to give in on either. 
Surely there's a way we can talk about how we can find a solution that satisfies everyone. Where we don't lose the relationship, but we don't give in to what's not truth. Well, there's a great example of that in Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, the the church at Jerusalem is brand new and, and there's already a conflict. There's already tension. There's already a problem. And the problem is that some of the widows who were from a Grecian background but were Jews, were Christians, were not being taken care of. And so the their family members go to the apostles and they say, hey, this isn't right. You need to do something about this. <laughs> Good thing that never happens to our leaders today, isn't it? Verse 2 of Acts 6, So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. And so what was the issue? Well, there were a couple of issues. One issue was taking care of these widows. That was a 10. It was not an option to not take care of them. But there was another issue that was also a 10, and that was the work of the elders and the leaders of the church there, the apostles who were supposed to be involved in the prayer and the ministry of the word. And this would take them away from that, this chore that so many others could do, but could not do what God had called them to do. That was a 10. And the apostles and the elders said, we're not giving an inch on that one either, but how about we come up with a creative solution? We have more options than just failing the widows or having the elders take care of it. How about we come up with something else? How about a solution where you look out from among you and choose seven men? They're not called deacons here, but that sounds a lot like what they are, doesn't it? You find seven men who are spiritual men. And who will be devoted to this task and will take care of it. And that's what they did. Two of those men were Stephen and Philip, who become key players in the book of Acts in the next few chapters. It's a collaborative solution. It's a solution where the issue is all important and is met. And the relationships are also important and are kept. And that's a hard one to do sometimes. And it takes some creative thinking and it takes some some willingness to commit to figuring out exactly what's at stake here and being faithful to both. That incident with Jesus and the woman caught in the very act of adultery in John 8 is very similar, where issue and relationship are both important and vital. And we'll talk more about that and some of the other collaborative solutions that we find in Scripture in this evening's message of five. Well, again, there are some copies of this completed chart in the back, and, and you're welcome to do that. Let me encourage you. This is just a simple one little sermon shot from a preacher, of all things. <laughs> and I realize that these are issues that are very important and that sometimes there's no easy solutions. And so let me give you a few names. John Murray, Marla Canifex. They're LPCs. They're licensed professional counselors. Call them. Talk to them. Let them help you. Pam Fennell recently completed a, a program in mediation. These are great, wonderful resources that we have in our church family. Call them or call someone when you need help. It's not a sign that you don't believe in God. 
you don't believe in the power of God when you ask for help. It's a sign that you do. And you're willing to do whatever he calls you to do to help. Well, as we close today, this one last thought. Jesus has resolved the biggest conflict of all. We celebrated it around the table today as Don led us. He has, he has resolved the biggest conflict of all. It was the conflict of our sins that separated us from God, as Isaiah 59 says. And he did it by giving himself, by dying on the cross, and by shedding his blood. And so now we are able to go before God with confidence and assurance because we go with faith, not in our own selves and in our own lives, but with faith in the one who gave himself for us. John 3 says, 2 Corinthians 5 says, took our sins upon himself so that we could become the righteousness of God. Romans chapter 5 says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you feel in conflict with God, you don't have to. Jesus has taken it away. If we can help you with that or with other relationships that you need prayer and assistance with, we're here for each other. Come as we stand, sing our song together. Find us together.